I must say, the, I feel like the pressure is really on this morning. Kevin announced last week that I would be preaching on the showdown this week, and before we even got down to coffee, two or three people had said, Oh, I can't wait till next Sunday. We come to the grill night Friday night, and people are saying, I can't wait till the showdown on Sunday. And I walk in this morning, What a great morning, it's the showdown. <laughs> the bar is high. But it's been an amazing couple of weeks as I have wrestled with the passage, and I'm not going to read the whole passage prior to the sermon because I'll be reading through it completely within the sermon, but if you want to turn to it so you have it open, you may do that. It'll be in 1 Kings 18, starting at verse 20. But as only God can do, provided so much thing, as, as Kevin has put it in this series, there's a lot of stuff that don't make the final edit. One of them is that it was not by chance that I received information about a, uh, a news article it was a news article about the opening ceremonies at the World Games held overseas. And in that opening ceremony, believe it or not, what came out and what was being in the middle of everything was a big, huge red bull with fiery eyes and smoke coming out of its nostrils and all the participants bowing down to it. Now, you can imagine how that struck me as I've been looking at worship of Baal. Uh, I was going to do something with that today, but that's on the cutting room floor. I may do something this week in a video, but we'll see how it goes. But it was a vivid, vivid reminder that the things we read, even in the Old Testament, are still alive and well around us today. What comes to mind, what picture do you get when I say showdown? My guess is there's a lot of things. Just what is a showdown? You look at the definition in the dictionary, and it's a final test or confrontation intended to settle a dispute. A confrontation, a deciding event, it's a clash, it's a crisis, it's a face-off, it's a moment of truth. And that means showdowns come in many shapes, sizes, and colors. In poker, for example, I don't play poker, but I'm told... In poker, it's a requirement at the end of a round that those who are still in have to show their hand to see who really has the best hand. Now, those of us on the older side of life, and I heard some say it already, probably think of a picture something like this. All right, every good Western, the hero and the bad guy had to face off in a duel. Of course, the good guy always won because he had to come back for the next episode, so you knew who was going to win, but nonetheless, we sort of lived for that, for that showdown. I think we're all familiar with family showdowns, a child and a parent, wives and husbands, and I love this next one, even little kids and siblings. Showdown, moment of crisis, even food networks have their showdowns. The sugar showdown. You, people who love sugar, that, that ought to be your show. The sugar showdown. Sports have their showdown. Soccer, wrestling, the big game. There's always one that's bigger than all the others, and every year it's a bigger game. It's the showdown. And certainly even nations have their showdowns as well. But one of the biggest, most dramatic showdowns of all times took place centuries ago on Mount Carmel. It involved Ahab and Elijah... Jehovah and Baal. To reset the stage, let me back up to a couple of the verses that Pastor Kevin ended with last week, starting in verse 16. Ahab went to meet Elijah 
And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. But you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. The showdown was set. We need to learn what Elijah did and what we can gain from that. First of all, Elijah diagnosed a dilemma. Verse 20. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now again, to review what Kevin said last week, a little more than three years prior to that, Elijah had spoken on behalf of Jehovah to Ahab. 1 Kings 17.1 As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. As a result of that, Israel was now in a bad way. In fact, they were very desperate. And it wasn't just the lack of rain. By this point in time, because of the way things had gone, there was official opposition to the worship of Jehovah. And so all the Israelite prophets and priests were being hunted down like animals. And we're told that there were only, out of that whole mass of Israelite people, there were only 7,000 of those Israelites who had not yet switched to the worship of Baal. So in this crowd, there were basically three categories of people. First, there was Elijah, the devoted servant of Jehovah. Second, there were the devoted servants of the evil one, the 450 prophets of Baal, and in addition, 400 prophets of Asherah. And then thirdly, there was the largest crowd, largely the Israelites, those who had not yet decided whether to fully worship Jehovah or Baal or perhaps both. Their ancient traditions tugged at their hearts and led them towards Jehovah, but their interest in living more at ease in their culture and staying at peace and being safe led them to bow before Baal. And so, in essence, they were secret or half-hearted followers of Jehovah while they were public public worshipers of Baal. They didn't necessarily stop worshiping Jehovah. They just worshiped other gods as well as Jehovah. Elijah knew the contest was not between himself and Ahab. It was between Jehovah and Baal because there could only be one God seated on the sovereign throne. I love how Joe Stowell put it. There are only two kingdoms in this world. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of Satan is a kingdom of death, darkness, lies, hurt, and chaos. And the kingdom of Christ is a kingdom of life, light, truth, healing, and peace. So Elijah looked at this mass of Israelites and he said, you need to stop limping and tottering between two ways. Now, I'm told that translating the Hebrew exactly into English is very difficult. But the obvious meaning and implication is how long will you keep on dancing from one leg to the other? Ever notice how when people are nervous, they kind of dance from one leg to another? How long will you keep dancing from one leg to another? Or another way it is said is how long are you going to keep trying to take both forks of the road at the same time? Can you imagine walking down? That's as far as I'm going to go for obvious reasons. 
But what an image that is. And so Elijah hits them and he says, how long are you going to keep on this way? For over three years there's not been a drop of rain because of the command of Jehovah. Isn't that proof enough? You're starving. Your cattle are dead. Your fields are parched. Your meadows are covered with dust. And yet all this time of judgment and trial and affliction has not been enough for you to make up your minds. How much more do you need? How long will it take? What proof do you need to convince you that Jehovah is indeed the one true God? Because you see, all gods are masters to be obeyed and served. Remember, in fact, what Jesus said? Luke sixteen thirteen, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And so Elijah said it's time to take a stand. But notice verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you try to take those two forks? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Even though the choice was clear, the people said nothing. Why? Maybe lack of knowledge? I don't think so. Apathy? Possibly. Uh, they, they didn't know how to choose? I doubt that. Or was it because they had a fear of taking a public stand? If we're honest about it, that seems to be a tendency of the followers of the true God, the tendency of Christians. Protestant pastor wrote these words after World War II. The Nazis came for the communists, and I did not speak up because I was not a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak up because I was not a Jew. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak up because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Catholics, and I was a Protestant, so I did not speak up. And then they came for me. By that time, there was no one left to speak for anyone. I like the fact that someone once said that too often we Christians are like kalima butterflies, often called dead leaf butterflies. As you can see in the picture, the upper sides of their wings are brilliantly colored, but the underside is sort of a drab gray-brown. So when they're flying in the air, both foe and friend can see them because of those beautiful colors, but as soon as they land, they fold up their wings and they look like a dead leaf. And this person said accurately, I think, that many of us are like that Kalima butterfly. We're, we're brilliantly colored on Sunday mornings and people see us walking into church and assume we have this devout commitment to Jesus Christ, but in the world we fold up our wings and we blend in with the rest of society. We blend in with society so much that when George Barnett takes his polls, he finds no appreciable difference between the average Christian and the rest of society in the way they live. Albert Camus 
was a remarkably sensitive agnostic who fought courageously with the French underground during World War II. He was once asked to speak to a group of Christians. Now imagine that, having the courage to go as an agnostic and speak to a large group of Christians. But he went. And taking them to task for their compromising silence while millions of Jews were slaughtered, he spoke some words that I believe are appropriate to Christians of all time. Here's what he said, some of what he said. What the world expects of Christians is that Christians should speak out loud and clear and that they should voice their condemnation in such a way that never a doubt, never the slightest doubt, could rise in the heart of the simplest man. That they should get away from abstraction and confront the blood-stained face history has taken on today. The grouping we need is a grouping of men, today we'd add, and women resolved to speak out clearly and to pay up personally. Perhaps we cannot prevent this world from being a world in which children are tortured, but we can reduce the number of tortured children. And if you don't help us, who else in the world can help us do this? It may be, I am well aware, that Christianity will answer negatively. Oh, not by your mouths, I am convinced. But it may be, and this is even more probable, that Christianity will insist on maintaining a compromise or else on giving its condemnations the obscure form of the encyclical, a study paper. Possibly it will insist on losing once and for all the virtue of revolt and indignation that belonged to it long ago. In that case, Christians will live and Christianity will die. In that case, the others will in fact pay for the sacrifice. In any case, such a future is not within my province to decide, despite all the hope and anguish it awakens within me. I can speak only of what I know, and what I know, which sometimes creates a deep longing in me, is that if Christians made up their mind to it, millions of voices, millions, I say, throughout the world, would be added to the appeal of a handful of isolated individuals without any sort of affiliation, today intercede almost everywhere and ceaselessly for children and for men. It takes an agnostic to open our eyes and prick our hearts. So Elijah diagnosed a dilemma which is very, very real to us yet today. And after the silence of the people... He delivered a challenge. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire... He is God. Then all the people said, What you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. If you want to know what soap works the best, you try one, you try another, you try another, and then you compare the results. That's what Elijah was proposing to do. Let's test it out and compare the results. 
He set up a contest between Jehovah and Baal. Verse 26. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. But the shouting and dancing was producing nothing. I love what comes next. So Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought, or busy, or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. I learned something that I think is absolutely powerful. The phrase that's translated there, perhaps he's busy, has been translated, he's pursuing He's gone aside, he's engaged, he has business to transact, he has occasion to retire. Most commentators believe that the phrase is a euphemism for turning aside for the call of nature or going to the privy. You talk about taunting. (laughs) Man, that's trash talk at its best, isn't it? But all that mockery did was incite the Baalists to get wild. 28 and 29. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed. They continued the frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. And no one paid attention. Elijah's challenge was for boldness and belief. We need boldness, and we need belief. We don't doubt that God can. We know He can. But I think we doubt that God will, especially through us, do such great things. And we must choose not by our feelings, but by God's facts. And as Pastor Kevin laid it out beautifully last week, we can be certain of God because of His power and His promises and His provision. Elijah wasn't afraid of offending someone. Rather, he feared offending Jehovah by not being faithful to him. Elijah didn't care if he was politically correct. He was concerned about being divinely correct. He didn't care where he stood with people. He cared about standing on the Word of God. So you and I need to be bold in approaching others, government officials, Society influencers, the uncommitted, the lukewarm. We need to stand in the authority of the Word of God. I confess to you this morning that one of the regrets of my years of ministry has been my failure to address the issues of our day. Oh, I I preached on most all the issues in the quiet safety of a sanctuary of like-minded believers, sort of like preaching to the choir. But I seldom went out and engaged those who were in positions of power. And as I've been preparing these last couple of weeks for this message, it's been a burden on my heart to compose at least two letters that the Lord has put before me. One is to the governor of our state, We took a budget agreed upon by the legislature and used our veto power to veto every line in the budget that had to do with protecting life. She wiped out tax credits for adoption. She wiped out all aid and assistance 
to every planned center, the kinds of ministries that you support. Nothing that helped those who choose to give their baby's life was left. That's wrong. It's evil. It's bail. Will we sit? Or will we speak up? I know she may never see the letter I'll send, but I'll send the letter. The other letter will be to the editors of Christianity Today, a once formidable Christian conservative magazine that has moved further and further left. They picked up a news story that was written by a very liberal and suspect organization. And the thrust of that story was defaming and discrediting a very creditable Christian ministry. The only problem was the story was filled with innuendos and lies. And Christianity Today, rather than check out the story, rather than check the source, rather than interview anybody at the Christian ministry, passed it on as truth. We can sit by and say, oh, that's Christianity Today. I'm being convicted. I share all this not to say, feel sorry for me, but I share it to say, if I'm certain of God, if I feel God can speak even through me, I have nothing of value to lose in being bold. You see, the bottom line is, God doesn't mind being put on the spot. He can handle it. The bolder we preach, the bigger God shows up. As a youth pastor in Iowa, I once invited a man to come and speak to our, to our senior high youth group. He was a man who had dedicated his free time to really studying what satanic worship was all about. And back in that day, that was, that was a very threatening thing for the church. And as he was sharing with them, he shared a story. He said that he had actually gone and attended a satanic worship service. And, of course, he told them to, to never do that. But he said, I want to tell you what happened. He said the worship was taking place, and it came to the point where the leader in the satanic worship service wanted to levitate someone, and he was having difficulty doing it. So he stopped, and he started to walk around the room, and he said, somebody in here is a Christian. And he walked around, and he stopped in front of this man, and he said, and it's you. Get out. And as this Christian man got up and walked out, he turned and said, isn't it great? that my God is still greater than yours. That, my friends, is boldness. And we shouldn't be surprised. What is it Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 4.20? The kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk. It is living by God's power. We need the courage to stand for God. We need to take to heart Paul's second letter to Timothy. It's a letter he wrote just shortly before he was executed. And the theme of the letter, his message was stand up and fight for the truth regardless of the cost. In chapter 1, Paul urges us to uphold God's truth at all costs. In chapter 2, he enjoins us to be unafraid of suffering for God's truth. In chapter 3, he encourages us to be steadfast even when others fall away from God's truth. And in chapter 4, he tells us to maintain our sense of urgency in spreading the good news to others. 
If you speak the word of God, you will speak with authority over people and situations. The question is, what has God, or what is God calling you to do? Whom is he calling you to confront? Government officials, influential power people, the uncommitted, the lukewarm. We do it just like Elijah did. That's what we're doing today. He directed the focus on God. Back to the passage, starting verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seals of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said. They did it again. Do it a third time, he offered. They did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. He rebuilt the altar. He reestablished their roots. He put them back on their firm foundation. And then, then he prayed. The account continues, verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Now just think about the contrast. There's 850 prophets sacrificing, praying, dancing, screaming, shouting, mutilating themselves to no avail. And then there's one solitary person, Elijah, alone, praying. And it's a prayer of not more than 60 words. And he prays for three things. One, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. Two, that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command, that I am in tune with you. And three, that you are turning hearts back again. What a great prescription for prayer. God be glorified. God, may they know that you are using me. And God, turn hearts to you. And look at the results. Verse 38, Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let any get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. That's a sermon for another time. That's on the floor of the edit room, too. And then Elijah prays again. Verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. 
Now look at the results. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, and a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. And then, isn't this great? The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. He beat the chariot. He ran about 17 miles cross-country. I mean, you talk about being pumped up. Wow. I'll leave it to Kevin to talk about the letdown after you get pumped up, but that's next week. (laughs) Never forget, we can be certain of prayer. John wrote in his first epistle, 1 John 5, starting at verse 14, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. Now, how could John be so bold? Because he remembered the words of Jesus, John 14, 13, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Is it any wonder Paul said in 1 Thessalonians, Pray without ceasing. Never stop praying until what you pray for is manifested in His name. You see, we can be bold, and we can confront. We can stand on God's word and authority. We can pray, because there was another showdown. There was a showdown on Calvary. And believe me, we know who won that one. The miracle of fire consuming the sacrifice on Mount Carmel converted the Israelites. But the greater miracle is that the sacrifice on Calvary started a fire in the hearts of people that has never been quenched and and never will be. But get this, there's still, still one more showdown to come. The book of Revelation shows us Jesus on the throne, the lion and the lamb that we sang so richly about. The battle is over. He is coming again. And indeed, when He does, as was quoted at the beginning of the service, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue conflict confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Think about it. Every knee, those who oppose Jesus, those who hate Jesus, those who mock Jesus, those who crucify Jesus, those who refuse to believe in Jesus, every knee will bow and confess, indeed, Jesus Christ is Lord. So, Jesus says, Luke 12, beginning verse 35, Be ready for whatever comes, dressed for action with your lamps lit, like servants who are waiting for their master to come back from a wedding feast. When he comes and knocks, they will open the door for him at once. How happy are those servants whose master finds them awake and ready when he returns. I tell you, he will take off his coat, ask him to sit down, and will wait on them. How happy they are if he finds them ready, even if he should come at midnight or even later. And you can be sure that if the owner of a house knew the time when the thief would come, he would not let the thief break into his house. And you too must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you are not expecting him. You know what? 
We're now at the very place where we started a few moments ago. Everything that happened followed Elijah's demand for a choice. This is our showdown moment. It's a moment for each of us to decide. I think the primary lesson, other than the greatness of our God, in this Mount Carmel showdown is the impossibility of neutrality in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Our English word neutral, in fact, comes from two roots, ne and utter, which means not either. Stay neutral means you're, you're not worshiping anything or anybody. We can't be neutral when it comes to Jesus. Someone put it this way. There are three frogs sitting on a log. Two decide to jump off. How many frogs are left on the log? The answer is three. Just deciding doesn't mean anything. Nothing happens until you first jump off the log. Declining counts for nothing. We're still on the log until we jump off. You can say you've decided to follow Jesus. You can write it, sing about it, preach about it, dance. But until you jump into a life of confronting the powers that are against him, you're still sitting on the log. And so I ask you this morning, are you sold out for Christ? What is keeping you from being a wholehearted follower of Jesus? And what would that look like for you? How long will we keep trying to take two forks in the road at the same time? Hear the words of Elijah, what are you waiting for? Years ago, a story came out of Russia of a small group of believers who had received one copy of the Gospel of Luke. It was the only scripture some of them had seen. So what they did was tear it up into small sections and divide it among themselves, and they said they would memorize their portion and the next Lord's Day get together and exchange the portions. The next Sunday they each arrived at different times in the place where they were meeting in small groups so as not to arouse the suspicions of the KGB informants. By dusk they were all safely inside Windows closed, door locked. They passionately, passionately but quietly sang a hymn. And all of a sudden the door flew open and in walked two soldiers loaded with loaded automatic weapons. And one shouted, All right, everyone line up against the wall. If you wish to renounce your commitment to Jesus Christ, leave now. Two or three quickly left. And then another. A couple more left. Then the soldier said, this is your last chance. Either turn against your faith in Christ or stay and suffer the consequences. Another left. Finally, two more left in embarrassed silence with their faces covered. They slipped out into the night. No one else moved. They knew they'd either be imprisoned or shot to death. After a few moments of silence, one of the soldiers closed the door, looked up and said, Keep your hands up. But this time in praise to our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, we too are Christians. We were sent to another house several weeks ago to to arrest a group of believers. And the other soldier interrupted excitedly and he said, but instead we were converted. We have learned by experience, however, that unless people are willing to die for their faith, they cannot be fully trusted. Would you have left or stayed? Indeed, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. In this, your showdown moment, whom will you serve? Lord God, remind us again that Elijah's message was meant for us this time in this place. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we have been way too comfortable and assuming that When you dress right and speak right, you'll be pleased. Lord God, stir our hearts. Every time we preach, we ask for you to accomplish your purpose. For you know the hearts of everyone who has heard and will hear this message. And you know what it takes to stir that heart. If there's someone who has never said, Lord, I want to serve you, given their heart to you, may they, in the moment of reflection, cry out to you and receive them. Holy Spirit, fill them. For those, Lord, who have perhaps slid forgotten that part of their commitment to you is not just, hey, I'm saved, but hey, I can serve. Confront them powerfully. And Lord, move each of us. Get us off the log. Send us into the world that we may boldly proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. Do your work in us and through us, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.